Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the uh, podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and today I'm privileged to have as my guest, Rachel S. Mikva, and uh, I have uh, been privileged to work with her on a grant along with Paul Lewis Metzger and a bunch of other colleagues uh, in uh, multi-faith education in different contexts, which has been fascinating. Her bio is fascinating as well. I will introduce her. She is the Rabbi Herman E. Shulman. I hope I pronounced that. We ran over before. Good. In the chair in Jewish studies and a senior fellow of the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. Rabbi Mikva earned her PhD and taught previously at Jewish Theological Seminary, focusing on rabbinic literature and the history of biblical interpretation. Her courses and research address a range of Jewish and comparative studies with a special interest in the intersection of scripture, culture, and ethics. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. Today, we're going to be uh, discussing your new book, which I have enjoyed quite a bit, and uh, the ideas are just fill, filled with all kinds of possibilities for teasing out. We're going to do some of that today. The, the book is titled uh, Dangerous Religious Ideas. I love that title. The <laughs> Deep Roots of Self-Critical Faith in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. That's published by Beacon Press. Now, um, what led you to write this book? Uh, someone like a Richard Dawkins might say, of course, every religious idea is a dangerous one, but you're not going there. So what led you to, led you to write the book and what's the, the basic thesis? So I do a lot of teaching and speaking in religious communities, and I kept bumping into two assumptions. In more traditional spaces, I'd often find that people were worried about even asking critical questions that somehow that would weaken faith or it was against the rules. And in more progressive spaces, I often found that people imagined that they had already reformed their traditions enough so that their religious ideas were never dangerous. And I wanted people to re-examine these assumptions to see the deep roots of self-critical faith and, and that they are designed to strengthen and improve faith, right? Not to subvert it. Uh, and to recognize that this work is never done. Because the minute we assume that all the dangers of religion belong to somebody else's faith, we become part of the problem. And to some extent, I think that the shape of the book is also an outgrowth of my own tradition. Jewish thought, rabbinic thought is profoundly dialectical. So it always recognizes competing truths and it wrestles in the constructive tension between them. And it's a, it's a sort of both and kind of tradition rather than an either or. And that very much shaped the thesis because I, like but also unlike Dawkins, actually do argue that all religious ideas are dangerous. Not only those that we would consider extremist, but even those we embrace, even those that stand at the heart of faith. Because they are powerful, because they're transformative, they also have the power to harm. And because most religious traditions have always known this peril, they've transmitted tools 
of self-critique as an essential dimension of our faith. It's part of our spiritual inheritance. So I believe that the seeds for this work are planted deep in the soil of religious thought and they're designed for us to cultivate. So I also believe that religion is a force for great blessing in the world and to maximize that and to mitigate the dangers, we, we all have to engage in this work of self-critical faith. And so in the book, I, I consider some examples of this kind of double-edged sword. I argue that scripture can be obviously a, a call to advance justice and mercy amidst God's creation, but also it can be a selectively read authorization to vindicate somebody's worldview and to marginalize those who disagree. And its abiding relevance canonizes othering, right? The perpetuating attitudes that might've been grounded in a particular historical context. I also look at a sort of interesting matrix of chosenness, election, supersession, and salvation. Um, and I recognize it can be an aspirational covenant to be worthy of God's blessing and an extension of it in the world. It's, it's filled with faith in God's abiding love and grace, but it's also been wielded as a claim of exclusivity and superiority. And then I look very briefly at the end um, at reward and punishment which can frame a pursuit of justice and discern meaning and suffering, but also encourage retribution and blame victims for their plight. So because that power to heal is always bound up with the power to harm and vice versa, I spent a lot of the book showing how voices in history have recognized the dangers and tried to guard against them, because I think that they are great teachers of self-critical faith. Well, I've appreciated uh, that aspect of Judaism and trying to understand it more on its own terms, but also as the roots of my own Christian faith, that, that willingness to wrestle within the tradition. I wish we had more of that in Christianity. For us, especially evangelicalism, it's very black and white. The Bible says uh, this, and, and we believe and do that. There, there's no recognition of tension and, and the need to wrestle constantly with it. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, you, you touch on this a little bit, but just kind of as a follow-up, uh, did, did this book arise out of your personal uh, living of your faith? You're an academic, but you're also uh, practicing uh, Judaism. Well, did it, was the academic dimension, was it your personal faith, or was it a combination thereof? I think that it's both. Uh, um, I think, obviously, this does work at the, those intersections of of scriptural interpretation and ethics that I am concerned about as an academic, that that's my field. Um, it is shaped, as I said, by the way I think about the world in terms of these dialectical tensions. Um, and then it's also heavily influenced by my experience in interreligious work in recognizing that we not only share you know, beautiful religious traditions, we also share challenges. Um, and, uh, and I think that recognizing that can be transformative for interreligious engagement. Now, you mentioned one of the sections of the book already, but it's divided into four parts, uh, dangerous religious ideas, uh, scripture, chosenness and election, 
uh, supersession and salvation and good and dangerous. How did you come to, out of everything you could have selected, how did you come <laughs> to identify those and focus on those? So the idea of framing through multiple traditions, not being like to compare each one to the other, but to recognize the shared challenges, that really was one of the criteria. So I wanted concepts that appear in all three traditions under study, which are the three traditions, by the way, that I know enough about to write about them. <laughs> the <laughs> others can also share in this interesting and important capacity for self-critical faith. I just know a lot less about them. But um, so I wanted them to be ideas that are framed within and important within Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, even though understood differently. So that was one criterion. Another is that um, I wanted to look for ideas that reveal the richer possibilities of meaning in scripture than are frequently acknowledged um, because the, this self-critical capacity goes back to our beginnings. But if I was gonna do that, then I also needed to treat scripture first. <laughs> so I had to talk about scripture and then do, you know, I um, obviously the section called you know, called chosenness and election, supersession and salvation deals with those themes. The good and dangerous section isn't quite as self-descriptive. That's where I do the justice work. And I talk about uh, reward and punishment as the religious idea, but I, what I'm trying to show in scripture and the history of tradition is that actually religious ideas about justice are way more complex and we've reduced them to this kind of eye for an eye thought that people of course sort of think of as religious ideas of justice and that is not at all it, right? So I wanted again to discover and uncover excavate really the, the much richer thinking about these ideas uh, then people are usually walking around with, well, the, it must mean X, right? When in fact, it it's much more multivocal, much more complex, much more dynamic. Um, so that was a criterion. Uh, and then I wanted to explore ideas that have both historical and contemporary ramifications, because ultimately I'm concerned about the way that we live out our faiths together in our own time. Mm -hmm. Um, so even though I am a nerd that does a lot of history of exegesis, um, I really, I'm, I'm really doing that work with an eye toward how do we live together today. That's great, good stuff. Now we kind of noted at the beginning, uh, atheists in general uh, tend to view religion negatively. Uh, a lot of, especially conservative religious believers tend to view it positively. You don't spend a whole lot of time thinking self-critically about the dangerous aspects of their religious tradition, or if they do, it's usually given a pass. Um, I perhaps am, am the opposite of that. I spend a lot of time being self-critical about my own religious tradition, but as a means of trying to not only unpack it and address it, but help my tribe uh, maybe live it out a little bit better. And a lot of times I get pushback from that. You're, you're being too negative. And my response is usually something like, seems pretty prophetic to me. It seems to me the prophets uh, did a lot of that. How did you come to embrace both the, the good side of not only your own religious tradition, but these others that you're writing about, as well as uh, the dark side? How did you come to develop that tension? I just can't not see it, right? I, I In the book, I compare it to fire, something that in its variety of forms is responsible for great blessings, something we can't imagine our world without. 
but it's also capable of ferocious destruction. And it's not always the action of a sociopath, right? It's often accidental. Sometimes we justify it or think it's necessary for some greater good. Um, and so because I mean by dangerous, not only justified violence, but also the emotional or psychological or social harm that religious ideas can do, I just, I, I can't not see that dialectical tension. And I think a lot of people of faith are worried that self-critical thought will somehow weaken faith. It's not that they're not capable of it. It's not that it's not in their tradition because it really is. And it's there in communities that don't think it's there. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider becoming a part by sharing on social media, clicking like and visiting our patrons page and website donation page. You can find the links on the program notes and YouTube comments. Thank you for your partnership. Now back to the program. Because I see the dangers and because I live out the goodness. And I mean, I, you know, my life is filled with all of the blessing that I know religion is capable of. And I see it on a daily basis in the students I teach in seminary and in the interreligious work that I do that, um, I believe that the self-critical capacity deepens and improves faith. And I think it makes it more resilient in a very complicated world. I don't think that a kind of black and white faith ultimately works. Uh, I think that we have to be able, and it certainly doesn't work to cultivate our, our common life together. I think in order to be able to make room for each other in our shared life, um, we have to be able to recognize the complexities and richness of our own traditions to be able to understand others. It's, it certainly makes your, your everybody's religious tradition a little messier, which I think is, is a good thing because I think life is messy. Um, right. I think that self-critical analysis also takes the construct that many times we inherit, uh, inherit in our religious traditions and if we look at it critically, sometimes it may not be what we thought it was, and then we don't know how to fit it back into this little construct that we have. So it's, in my experience, it's a process of continual reflection, deconstruction, and reconstruction that I think is a positive and healthy thing uh, across all traditions. So I think your book does that and helps folks do it. Moving from kind of a general discussion of your book to drilling down into some more specifics that you discussed there, um, one of the dangerous religious ideas you talk about is scripture, which may strike uh, some folks uh, as curious. How is scripture a dangerous religious idea? So I briefly mentioned that the concern that people sometimes wield the word uh, against one another to justify their own worldview. You know, not only do I think you're wrong, God says you're wrong. Um, and it has that danger then to harm other human beings. And it also has a theological danger of presuming that we can speak for God, right? that our understanding is the divine understanding. And it's eternally relevant nature automatically canonizes the attitudes that were grounded in that particular historical context. So in Hebrew Bible, we see sort of a polemic against Canaanites um, I would argue that in the New Testament, and I'm not alone, that in the New Testament, we see a lot of hostility to the Pharisees is because they were the, the too close other, right? The, the closest competition, if you will. Um, and so they get the real brunt of the, of the critique. Um, 
And because we have this canon, we also have voices that were left out. So, you know, a lot of women struggle with the role or absence of women or lack of power of certain kinds of models. We can recover the ones that are there and pay them a lot more attention than history did, but um, but there's still struggles about voices left out of the canon. I think the really interesting question then is how did the traditions recognize and grapple with those dangers because we're not the first ones to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so long before the rise of historical criticism that might view scripture as the work of human hands, there was already self-critical faith. So you don't have to, you know, you can still believe in the divinely revealed word and embrace self-critical faith. And so there was awareness about multivocality, but uh, in scripture and in its interpretation, the rabbis celebrated this. They, they saw the multiple possibilities of meaning that radiated from deep engagement with Hebrew Bible. And they called it, they talked about it as the 70 faces of Torah. They recorded majority and minority opinions. Um, we see it also in the New Testament, right? The, the canon itself, like the gospels are the gospel according to, for the central Christian story, we have four different versions mm-hmm. because nobody experiences that kind of transformational religious you know, occurrence the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, St. Augustine compared multiple exegeses uh, to the command to be fruitful and multiply, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what God wants us to do, is to keep hunting for possibilities of meaning in scripture. The idea that there is this single certain meaning, that's a very modern idea, shaped much more by Cartesian ideas about scientific certainty than religious thought. It's not the way religions have historically taught about scripture. Um, uh, And for Quran, very interestingly, because it was presented, proclaimed in a multi-faith context of Arabia with some knowledge of Judaism, Christianity, and other traditions, but those as scriptural traditions. Quran, there's a wonderful surah that's kind of a poster child of pluralism. Uh, uh, It's in the fifth surah. It says, we've sent down the book to you with truth, confirming and conserving the previous book. So they're talking about Hebrew Bible, they're talking about New Testament, So it advises the Muslim community not to observe those books, but to go by their book, right? Because every people gets their book. We've appointed a law and a practice for every one of you. Had Allah willed, he could have made you a single community, but he wanted to test you regarding what has come to you. So compete with each other in doing good, right? Not not about the truth. Don't Mm -hmm. compete, I'm right and you're wrong. Just see how well you can do your covenantal commitment. Um, and I just think it's a it's a profound uh, notion of recognizing and in multivocality and embracing it as divinely willed, right? That God could have made us all one people if that was the plan, and it wasn't the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also in the traditions a profound humility about the limits of our understanding. My favorite example, or my favorite language for this, comes from Nicholas of Cusa, who's who actually adopts something from St. Augustine, but um, the Latin is docta ignorantia, but the translation that I've come to embrace is learned ignorance, right? The more, <laughs> the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know. Um, and Augustine says, you know, only God's knowledge is absolute. 
So again, this helps us not wield our understanding of scripture, though be it divinely revealed, you know, it for those who, who, who still embrace that notion, that doesn't mean that what I think it means is, is the divine word. So um, there's also this appreciation for the provisional nature of truth that we find in our traditions, right? That what faith is about is not certainty. It's faith, right? It's, these are truths to live by, not absolutes. The rabbinic work on this is fascinating. It also believes in this kind of divinely intended multiplicity. There are these two schools of thought that have been arguing for decades. And, and finally, a heavenly voice comes down and says, these and these are both the words of the living God. Right? This, you know, figure out how to, how to grapple with that duality, that multiplicity. Um, there's also a rabbinic story about uh, the sages are all arguing about whether or not, it's a technical question, is this oven fit for use? But the drama of the story is that all of the sages except one believe this one way and the one believes another. And he starts calling down miracles to confirm that he's right. The carob tree jumps up out of the ground, the river starts flowing backwards. And eventually they argue that you, you, know, you, you can't prove anything from miracles. Um, and a heavenly voice eventually comes down and says, uh, uh, you know, why are you arguing with Rabbi Eliezer? He's always right about this stuff. And they say to the, they quote Deuteronomy to the heavenly voice and say, it's not in heaven. Right? This was Moses talking to the Israelites about how Torah is accessible to them. But they, they argue with the heavenly voice. You know, it's not in heaven. You gave us Torah to figure out how to interpret it. So essentially butt out is what they're saying to the heavenly voice. Um, uh, and then a later part of the story, one of the sages comes across the, the spirit of Elijah and says, you know, what did God think about that whole uh, thing? And, and Elijah says, God laughed and said, my children have defeated me, um, you know, in debate. And so there are these notions about this might not be absolutely right. This is the way our community is going to observe it, but we won't pretend that we're certain this is what God meant. This is how we understand it. There's also, um, in terms of mitigating the dangers of scripture, a recognition of the importance of doubt as a part of faith. Abelard talked about it as by doubt, we would come to inquiry. And by inquiry, by asking the questions, by asking the critical questions, we will draw closer to the truth. And one of the most surprising ones for people is that there's a pre-modern consciousness of historical change. Um, and that that would impact the way we understand scripture. Uh, John Chrysostom was kind of considered the, the prince of condescension, um, which is a, a you know, the Christian terminology for this idea that God will speak in a way that we'll understand it. But our understanding changes. So God doesn't change, but because our understanding changes, the meanings can change. Um, uh, William of O'Byrne talked about scripture as a divine textbook for all the different levels. And that wouldn't, that means not only every different person in a single moment, but also over time, right? That we would come to understand scripture differently. Um, again, there's a great rabbinic story in the Talmud where um, Moses shows up in a first century rabbi's 
classroom, right? These are not historical stories. These are stories of imagination to try to teach a point. Uh, but Moses shows up in a first century rabbi's classroom. His name is Rabbi Akiba. Because he doesn't understand a thing of what's going on, he has to sit in the back like a newbie. Um, but one of the students further forward says, well, Rabbi Akiba, how do you know this? And Rabbi Akiba says, it goes back to Moses on Mount Sinai. I love this idea that an authentic inheritance, right? Transmission of the tradition centuries later might be unrecognizable to the person who was earlier in the chain of that transmission, but it is still an authentic embodiment of the tradition. Because in, in the story, you know, Moses feels better. He's like, okay, this is good. And, and starts to really appreciate Rabbi Akiva's gifts. Um, so I spend over 40 pages in the book unpacking all that, but that's the gist. It collectively argues that we shouldn't wield scripture as a weapon against anyone because we can't mistake our understanding for God's. And I believe that has the power to mitigate the dangers of scripture while still able to embrace its transformational gifts. We'll never be fully rid of the dangers because you know, for scripture to lose its danger would have to lose its power and we don't want it to lose its power. Um, and I argue that you could do this exercise naming the promise and the dangers and showing instances of each as well as historical capacity to recognize and guard against the dangers with almost any religious idea. And I think that these historical models of self-critical faith matter. They demonstrate this is not some tool of secularism that's bent on destroying religion, right? This is not an assault on religion the way that you would see come out of a new atheist critique. It's instead a gift of our spiritual inheritance. And it's not the exclusive property of progressives or of a single tradition. Um, and I think another thing that it, it also helps us see is that no religious idea has always meant what we think it means today. Um, and it helps us see that the work is never done. For sure. Uh, one of my concerns, uh, and you've dealt with it uh, wonderfully in your book, is that potential for the weaponization of scripture. And I know we evangelicals do that pretty well, but unfortunately we're not the only religious tradition to do so. And of course, these elements that you're dealing with in your book, that they're all related to each other. So moving from how scripture can be a dangerous religious idea and be weaponized to another section of your book, uh, where you talk about uh, chosenness and election, supersession and salvation as dangerous ideas. These have been dangerous ideas historically in the past with Christianity versus Judaism in the present. Uh, unfortunately, as we record this between the the latest clashes between Israel and Palestine. How can we how can we more positively wrestle with the positive aspects while not losing sight of the tendency to use those for for dangerous kinds of concepts and activities towards each other? Well, it's the longest section in the book. I rewrote it five times. It was really hard to organize because it's it's this nesting doll that every idea you start to look at, you know, there's something else inside and you just, it just keeps going. And so it's going to be a little hard to summarize. Sure. Um, but I do organize the dangers around two primary ideas. Uh, one is conquest and the other is the ways that we identify and evaluate difference. So, um, 
scriptural and historical examples. Uh, for instance, in Deuteronomy 9, there's a linking of the idea of conquest with the idea of chosenness when it talks about instructing the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites. Um, and conquest can be spiritual as well as physical. So I bring the example um, uh, during the period of colonialism when um, Geronimo de Mendieta, Mendieta, who was a 16th century Franciscan monk um, who wrote the, the history of um, Indian Christianity in Mexico. To him, Cortez was his Moses, right? Liberating native peoples from demonic powers and leading more people to Christ than Luther had taken in his view. Um, and, uh, you know, but from another perspective, this is spiritual conquest, obviously. So um, what, one of the things that I do is explore very deeply the way that scriptural testimony opens up actually very many different ways to think about chosenness and election. And when I explore historical examples of the dangers manifesting themselves, I look also for others where religious teachings tried to contain the dangers. So the rabbis, for instance, tried to circumscribe conquest, right? They basically argued that the scriptural commands in Deuteronomy don't apply any longer um, because there are no Canaanites. Uh, Sennacherib mixed them all up. Uh, and so they, um, they sort of strip away uh, conquest from chosenness. Um, there were also efforts to humanize religious others and trying again to think about pre-modern efforts to make the way we navigate difference less fraught. Um, uh, and there were interpretations that uh, beyond scripture took sort of the magnified the blessing part and tried to minimize the danger part, right? So the rabbis argued that the righteous of all nations have a place in the world to come. That's the rabbinic language for what in Christianity we might say is heaven. Um, in Christian thought, Clement of Alexandria and Origen and Gregory of Nyssa all believed in universal salvation, right? Abacatastasis, that, that God's defeat of death means that every soul is ultimately reunited with the divine, ultimately restored to wholeness with God. Um, when Vatican II announced that God doesn't renege on the divine promises, including promises to the Jews, um, that's not, it was not a complete rejection of supersessionism. The church still sees its path as the truest path of salvation. Um, it is perhaps more akin to um, a Muslim Sufi uh, teaching about uh, Ibn Arabi as one of these sort of mystic um, folks capable of transcending religious boundaries and seeing that, you know, the way that that multiple different, even, even contradictory religious um, teachings can ultimately be full of light. Um, but he talked about the sun versus the stars and the light of the sun, which for him was Islam comes out, then you don't see the light of the stars anymore, but they have, still have light, right? So um, the Vatican II teaching um, of Nostra Aetate is perhaps akin to that. Uh, you know, I think that we recognize 
the ways that this gets bundled into nationalistic uh, tropes as well, um, both with American exceptionalism. And I would, you know, if you look at the history of, of Zionism, of modern Zionism, it's not a religious claim, right? They were secular Jews looking to establish a state. It was a, 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 a um, sort of a national liberation project in the age of nation building, right? Um, and the uh, introduction and the claim to the land was not that God promised it, right? It wasn't a biblical claim. It was this is where our history of autonomy has been over a thousand years of living as a people autonomous in this land. Um, but uh, but in the current manifestation, of course, we do see religious claims get bundled into that as some of the religious nationalists, or really I would argue religious ultranationalists, are um, sort of changing the terms of, of that claim. Um, in any event, I think that um, conquest has not been permanently stripped, right, from ideas of chosenness and election, a sense of entitlement to, to whatever resources, whether it be land or something else, is land or power is another interesting thing that we sometimes uh, try to conquer. Um, in terms of navigating difference, I think that... Uh, it's a building block for the way we think. In the book, I talk about the Sesame Street song, right? One of these things is not like the other, right? This is the way we learn, right? We learn, okay, these things are round and that one's not. These things are blue and that one's not. Um, uh, I think it's also evident in the way the creation story is told in chapter one of Genesis, right? Separating light from dark, right? We, this is the way we organize our thinking. Um, and we can mark a difference without seeing inequality, but we instinctively mix them a lot. Um, and, you know, so I think that we can see, we see a lot of contemporary voices arguing that chosenness doesn't mean that God is not in relationship with other people, that God doesn't choose other people, that everybody can feel in special relationship with God. Um, uh, I had a colleague when we were in rabbinical school who gave a sermon that the problem, the dysfunction in, jo in Jacob's family was that he, he couldn't make all of his children feel special the way he made Joseph feel, right? It was raising more Josephs was what he was the title of his sermon. And I still remember it all of these decades later. Um, you know, and Jacob wasn't quite capable of that, but God is, right? God can be in special relationship with all of us. So anyway, I, I think that we can mark difference without seeing inequality, but we have to get better at that. And so uh, in the book, I try to emphasize the ideas of chosenness and election that can be manifestations of blessing, you know, while we guard against the dangers. And those are the, the blessings, the way the blessing is understood is different in each tradition, but they're there. And I think we have to, again, recognize what value the religious idea has, maximize that, recognize the dangers that it will always be accompany that and guard against them. I think your book uh, relates to one of the key challenges we face in, in the world, particularly in American culture now with our deep polarization. Um, I think we're in a time of transition with, especially in a post-Trump era, 
with uh, Christendom culture splintering and fracturing and, and being viewed uh, far more negatively, minority religious traditions are now arguing more uh, urgently for their place uh, in the public square and their place at the table. And with this situation we face ourselves in now, there's more awareness of difference a lot of times, uh, reconcilable differences many times. Um, but at the same time, there's also, uh, even though a religion is many times a component of our, pol our political differences and, and things like this, we tend to keep it on a secular and political level without going deep and recognizing how religion informs a lot of those differences. So with this complex package that we have in our culture today, as it relates to your book, what kind of thoughts would you have about applying some of your insights? How do we maintain that tension between recognizing the good uh, and the not so good, the dangerous ideas, as we try to work together just through our differences in the public square for the common good of everybody. I think the differences can can really help us do this work because you know we, we see it's that our way is not the only way, um, even if it's still our preferred way. Um, I advocate ultimately a conversation model in public discourse rather than one of strict separation of religion and state. And for me, that means a conversation in which religious ideas are critically engaged. And that has two directions, at least. Uh, there's the self-critical public discussion and this part's trickier, civil debate about other people's religious ideas. Because religious ideas, give they matter too much to give them a pass. Um, and some of that discourse is to advance simply understanding one another and the deepest commitments we bring into the public square. But sometimes we have to say, well, I understand that, but that creates a problem from my perspective and here's what the problem is. Um, so one of my, here's a great, a great chance to tell you about my favorite example of self-critical faith. Um, it's a blog post from last fall that Reverend Rob Shank uh, wrote. It was a series of blog posts he wrote about um, what's gone wrong with evangelical Christianity. So obviously he's writing toward the end of a Trump term, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, that it's had a lot of implications for what it means to be an evangelical Christian. And a lot of evangelical Christians have been really looking hard at that. Um, so for those who don't know the name, he is an evangelical leader who with his brother really started the anti-abortion movement. Um, a lot of people don't remember, but uh, the evangelical community, to the extent that it spoke publicly when Roe v. Wade was first uh, issued as a decision, they supported it. Again, no religious idea has meant what it means that we what we think it means today. Um, and but Rob Shank was very effective in mobilizing evangelicals and Catholics um, uh, and really helping to start an anti-abortion movement. But he wrote one of his self-critical blogs last fall was about abortion. And he talked about having lost sight of the welfare of pregnant women, about having lost sight of the greatest commandments of loving God and loving neighbor, the, how he felt he'd lost sight of everything that's required to be pro-life, including life beyond the womb. And he acknowledged that he got caught up in the culture wars and in the rightness of his cause and the glorification of his own reputation. 
and feels like he helped to birth a movement which now does not pursue the common good because it sometimes resorts to violence and it has abandoned so many of its other ethical commitments. So he still believes that fetal life should be protected, but not at the expense of women. And he's now willing to grapple with that dialectical tension. Um, and he began to explore also what Judaism says about the beginnings of life, recognizing that Jesus was a Jew. Although a lot of times when we look at what Judaism says, first of all, it never only says one thing, but, <laughs> but, um, but a lot of that developed after the time of Jesus uh, in the rabbinic period. But nonetheless, I think that that's a faithful exploration to sort of figure out um, to think again more dynamically about what these ideas might have meant through the transmission of his faith. Now, by saying such things in the public square, even though he's only really talking mostly about himself, it really is self-critical. Normally, when we talk, when we try to be self-critical, we're critiquing our tradition, but not our embodiment of it, of course, which is already perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love this example because it really is self. I mean, I think both of those things, both being able to look critically at our traditions, but also look critically at our own embodiment of it are essential. Anyway, as by saying such things in the public square, obviously he's implicating other people's religious ideas, but as self-critique, Reverend Schenck's voice reveals that there are these profound self-critical capacities within evangelical Christianity. That some, as you mentioned, both inside and certainly outside the community, didn't think they were there, that they are. And that an important aspect of improving public discourse in the public square is revealing the multivocality within our traditions and our communities. And that they do have this capacity for nuance and self-critique and and that that ultimately cultivates the possibility of listening to one another in pursuit of the common good. So the other part of my um, conversation model is a little trickier, as I said, the civil debate about other people's religious ideas, uh, because it can easily give voice to religious bias, but silence is dangerous too. So I'd rather try to do civil debate well. And given the current reality of certain biases, you know, it's happening anyway. So for instance, there's a lot of anti-Muslim bias in the West. And so there's plenty of critique going around, but a lot of it's ill-informed and a lot of it's malevolent. So I think that needs to be countered by people willing to engage conversation in a critical fashion, but wanting to do that constructively for the purpose of understanding and improving our common life. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to persuade people who are absolutely convinced we're being overtaken by Sharia law, even though I'm quite certain we're not. But at least I want to make sure that those aren't the only voices being heard. Um, so in the book, I talk, I give two little, I don't know, they're, they're not exactly tools. They're just ideas about how we might think about doing this well. One is Kathleen Kaveny's beautiful distinction between condemn and contemn. It's only one little letter, but it's a world of difference. We can be quite certain that something is a really bad idea. We could even be willing to condemn it as an idea, but we can do that without contempt for the people who hold it. Right? Now that's not easy and we don't do it very often, but we can. 
right? We can make those distinctions so that we don't see people who disagree with us, even about things that seem really important to us. We don't see them as ethically bankrupt, you know, morally vacant. I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking at probably synonyms for it. I'll come back down to the same thing, right? That you are absent your humanity because you disagree. Uh, um, and I, I don't, I think that we can make those distinctions. And then I bring an example um, from Diana Eck, who was quite concerned when the Southern Baptists published a publication, that's redundant, published a pamphlet <laughs> about Hinduism. Um, and she happens to be a scholar of Hindu tradition. So she wrote them a letter, wrote a letter to the Southern Baptist leadership, and then it became a public letter. Um, and she said here, I'm gonna quote it. As a scholar of Hinduism, I must say you've seriously misrepresented the Hindu tradition. And I'd be happy to speak with you about where I think your portrayal is misleading. As an American and fellow citizen, however, I'll defend your right to believe and practice Christianity as you do, to believe the worst about our Hindu neighbors, to believe they're all going to hell and to say so both privately and publicly. But as a Christian, let me challenge you here, for I believe that your views of our neighbors are not well grounded in the gospel of Christ as I understand it. I love this paragraph of her letter mm -hmm. because she speaks from Christian tradition, right, as a Christian, but not for it, recognizing mm -hmm. that there are multiple ways of thinking about the gospel of Christ. She uses her expertise in Hindu traditions to challenge what they've said but without demonizing them. In fact, she says, hey, come, let's study together, right? Let's, let's, let's look at the teachings. And she does something that's very important um, for theological, theologically conservative voices in America today who worry that the, that the, as you talk about the, the fading of Christendom Right as I and I think about it as the disestablishment mm -hmm. of of state religion, mm -hmm. um, that that somehow is going to undermine their freedoms. Right, so she right. affirms their freedom. Right, I I don't think I don't think you're right. I don't think this is a good thing to say, but you are absolutely free to say it. Right, and I'm not trying to stop you. Um, I'm just challenging the the rightness of what you assert, and so. Um, I think that that's a brilliant model for ways that we might try to navigate together self-critically, um, toward working toward the common good. I like Robert Audi's notion. Uh, he's got a big, you know, a big jargony word for it. He calls it theoethical equilibrium. Um, but essentially he argues that where religious considerations bear on matters of public morality or political policy, that religious people have an obligation to seek a balance between those considerations, between what their faith teaches them and the relevant secular standards of ethics and political responsibility. And this is different than what John Rawls taught in terms of public reason. You don't have to translate your religious values. You can speak your faith, but it requires balancing what my religion teaches say with a plural understanding of the broader public good. It requires us to stand both inside and outside our traditions to examine their impact to see how they are touching each other, right? Um, 
It requires, not no surprise, given that I wrote this book, self-critical faith um, and reclaiming the complexities of our traditions and a commitment to the common good of our diverse society. That is all very good stuff. I appreciate uh, you carving out the time, a busy academic schedule amongst everything else that you've got going on. Uh, Rachel, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, you folks will find a description and a link for purchase to this great book. Again, the title is Dangerous Religious Ideas, The Deep Roots of Self-Critical Faith in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I would encourage all the listeners and viewers to pick up a copy and dive a little more deeply and self-critically in their faith. It'll make your faith better, and it'll make the world that we live in better as well. And again, until uh, the next uh, Multi-Faith Matters podcast, thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you next time.